I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And these are our incredible stories. Hello, and welcome back to all of our listeners across the United States and around the world. We're happy to have you back with us. If you are listening for the first time, welcome to our show. Our new episodes are always posted on Fridays. And uh, if you like what you hear, we have a whole catalog of uh, incredible stories that we invite you to uh, listen to. And uh, we hope that you will like and subscribe and uh, join us for future episodes. So uh, getting started with uh, this evening's episode, we are going to be talking about a truly incredible story, a man by the name of Armin Lehman. And uh, Armin's story is a very unique story, although it is not um, the only story of its kind, but it is truly an incredible one. Isn't that right, Dad? Yes, it certainly was. And the nice thing about telling Armin's story is that you and I both became very good friends with Armin in his later years in life, right up to the uh, time that he uh, passed away in, I think it was 2008, uh, at the age of 80 years old. So <clears throat> we've got, uh, fortunately, we have Armin telling his story in his words uh, and uh, back in the day when we recorded it. And so uh, you folks are going to be able to hear his story uh, as basically an eyewitness participant in one of the incredible moments in world history. Uh, so, Gary, uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, <clears throat> let everybody know a little bit more about Armin. His middle name, by the way, was Dieter, Armin Dieter Lehmann. Uh, he was born in uh, 1928 in Germany. And let me just go ahead and quote a couple things from his resume to give folks an idea of what is about to come. Okay. These are Armin's words. Hitler seized power before I was five years old. It was not my choice to grow up under the form of government in which absolute power is held by a dictator. I was selected by the Reichsjugendfuhrer, Arthur Axman, to be a member of a Hitlerjugend Helden, that's a Hitler Youth Heroes group, a delegation to visit Adolf Hitler in Berlin on his birthday. I met Adolf Hitler in the Reich Chancellery Garden, also known as the Hinterhof, outside his bunker on his last birthday, April 20th, 1945, I became one of his last couriers as a member of Arthur Axman's staff. And I might also add at this point that uh, Axman also assigned um, Armin to go ahead and wish Hitler a happy birthday greetings on Deutschland Sender, which was the national radio station at that time also. So Armin's voice was heard uh, around the country and around the Third Reich. Um, during that time. Now, <clears throat> back to what Armin was saying in his resume. During my duty as a courier inside and outside the bunker, I witnessed the total collapse of the Third Reich. I was able to observe the final days of Hitler, Eva Braun, 
Martin Borman, Joseph Goebbels and his family. I was in the adjacent party chancellery when Hitler committed suicide. After Hitler's death, I participated in the bloody breakout from the bunker. Two months later, I succeeded in reaching the American occupation zone. Now, Gary, at uh, this time, he was about ready to just turn 17 years old. He was only a 16-year-old when this, we, he was participating in this chapter of history. And so uh, in the American occupation zone, when he turned 17 <clears throat> and um, uh, found out uh, what uh, Hitler and the Third Reich were really all about, of which he really had no idea, he decided at that tender age to devote his entire life to peace activism, which he did up until the moment he passed away. Uh, in the cause of peace, Armin traveled, Gary, to more than 150 countries, speaking out for nonviolence, tolerance, and understanding to all who would listen. And it is our privilege to have recorded for him a lecture in which he could tell his story and bring his message of peace, nonviolence, and tolerance to the world when he was physically no longer able to do that himself. And tonight and next week, our listeners will have the rare treat of hearing Armin's lecture that we recorded for him uh, for the world. That is correct. And uh, get ready, folks, because we're going to play that for you now. Hello, I'm Armin Lehman. I used to do seminars for students, high school students and college students uh, with uh, historical background. I'm no longer in a position to do these seminars because I can no longer travel. But I thought, uh, We'll put my last seminar, this one, on tape, and then schools and universities and colleges on demand can ask for the tape and share with me uh, this short period of history. I was born in Germany, actually before Hitler became Reich Chancellor. I was born into a family that raised me on an estate called Walkut Horker, the forest estate. Um, one thing I remember, I had a very strict father, was that he maintained Wald Menschen haben keine Angst, people who grow up in the woods are fearless. That did not apply to me. Uh, but I have very, very fond memories. Uh, we, for example, had uh, a mate there and picked blueberries and berries, wild berries together. When I started uh, going to school, there were no school buses, uh, so I walked 45 minutes to and 45 minutes from school. Um, another uh, memory I have um, living up in Walcott, I had uh, three dogs, two Irish 
one Irish setter and two English retrievers. And for a short time I had my own deer, but then came mating time and the deer disappeared. Um, so these were the years uh, in Germany when the Nazis took over and I had absolutely no idea what they stood for. Um, one memory I have standing on the balcony of our house and raising my arm and uh, imitating one of the speeches uh, I had heard over the radio um, by Hitler. I had a friend, his name was Rudy, I still um, remember Rudy quite well and tried to find him in 45, but he had uh, disformation, his spine, and uh, the Nazis had this strict uh, race and uh, health policy. So in 45, by the time I tried to find him again, he had been sent to an institution. His mother was a nurse, and she was uh, in Kriegseinsatz, which means in the service. And her husband, his father, uh, was drafted and then uh, fell at Stalingrad. I was a very obedient child, no wonder, because we had harsh punishments. was punishment at the age of nine or ten, I tell you. And um, we moved because uh, of financial considerations, but also my father was uh, offered a position which required membership in the party and hired um, by the radio station and the radio station was part of the propaganda ministry. Oh, my memories of Silesia are plentiful, but I had reached the age of 10, where it was mandatory, and most people don't realize it. Uh, it was mandatory to join the Hitler Youth. In September 38, the law took effect. So the Gestapo could come on your home and arrest you if you had a son, or a girl for that matter, between the ages of 10 and 18, who did not belong to the Hitler Youth. In my case, I must admit, and retroactively looking back, uh, I fully understand, I wanted a uniform, I wanted uh, a camping knife, the whole outfit, and I wanted to belong. Uh, so I couldn't wait to be admitted to the Italy Youth. In 1938, uh, my birthday is in May, and April the 20th was a cut-up day. So I became a Hitler Youth and rose pretty fast. Uh, one thing the Nazis knew well is how to promote and make you feel good uh, and make you feel important if you fit into their uh, way of thinking and the way they wanted the German youth uh, to develop. The main uh, factors were race, 
and the uh, loyalty to the fatherland. Um, I had some problems uh, athletically. I was not the strongest. In fact, my dad, his main complaint, he was never happy with me. Uh, I wasn't the first in school. I was very selective in what I liked. I liked um, biology. Uh, I liked history. I didn't like English. I didn't like math. So I was never a straight A student. I had my, in Germany, the scale is from one to six. So I had a few ones and almost as many sixes in my report card. How would a boy from an average family, average I must say, uh, the Nazis wanted lots of children and therefore they awarded the mothers. So my mother got the bronze mother cross and then the silver mother's cross and uh, I was the oldest in the family but never did I measure up to my father's expectations. And it's hard to believe, but when I ended up in Berlin at the reception of Hitler, the thought that went through my mind was, I saw the Wochenschau crew, the uh, newsreel. I hope my father's going to see the newsreel because, you know, there would be um, proof that, number one, I was not a weakling, and number two, I wasn't a coward or afraid. And, you know, at the end of the war, I really came to the conclusion, and this was part of... Uh, uh, thoughts we shared uh, among comrades and so uh, we were not afraid of death but we were afraid of dying after you saw your comrades mutilated and uh, um, destroyed by grenades or by explosive and uh, torn into pieces but how did an uh, average kid that wasn't even a uh, uh, good student uh, end up in Berlin at the, uh, the Führer's birthday. I originally wanted to be a U-boat pilot. Then I found out that U-boats are pretty cramped and not too many were left. Then I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And we had these aces, Mulders and Gowand, and looked up to them and thought, you know, there you can display your skills. And But by the end of the war, there were very few planes left. And my third choice was Geburtsjäger, which is mountain. And they had a training program for soldiers who wanted to become mountain soldiers, uh, Dietl and Narvik had made this unit uh, very famous. And I took off 
between Christmas and New Year, 1944 and 1945, into the Alps, to the um, Olympic downhills. Kreuzeck was the uh, station, and we were 40, and almost finished training when word came that the Russian offensive had started uh, in the east and they were approaching Silesia. I asked the camp commander to get my papers uh, for the return to Breslau and he said, no, you have two days to go and uh, you have to finish uh, the training here. Um, so I took it on myself to leave that camp at 3 a.m. in the morning, two days before the official um, ending. And uh, if I was caught, I could have been shot on the spot. But I got down to Garmisch Partenkirchen. There was a commander at the station, the station commander. And uh, by then, the whole nation knew that the Russian offensive had started. And I had papers, of course, that indicated that I uh, resided in Breslau. And he gave me the papers. And after I got through Saxony into Silesia, uh, the traffic was such that uh, the people in the eastern uh, provinces all went west. And very few, like I, went east because I wanted to get my mom and my siblings. So I arrived in Breslau, and the place was empty. And everything was neat, everything was cleaned up. There were bills unpaid, but to be paid, and what was gone were the Christmas cookies. <laughs> so instead of uh, getting clothes and and they packed stuff to eat. And we still had the maid at this time. So my mother, the maid, my sisters, Anja, Ute, and Dörte, and uh, my two brothers had taken off to a place called Hoyerswerda, which was the first collection point. And we had lived in Hoyerswerda, so I knew my mother was familiar, and we even had a aunt there, though I didn't worry too much about it. But I had reached the age, and of course I resided in Breslau, where I had to join the Volkssturm, the home defense. Boys or men from 16 to 60 had, by order of the commander assemble and go through quick training and move in front of Breslau, which was the capital of Silesia, and declared a fortress uh, to stop the oncoming Russians. Just picture us, 15, 16 years old. And then they did one smart thing. They separated the youngsters from uh, the older veterans. And we marched east, and we came to the point where in opposing villages, 
There were the Germans and there were the Russians and started at five o'clock in the morning to attack the Russians. And we captured the village across. I didn't make it because I got shot into in my behind, heavy bleeding, but I had two comrades who were worse off than I. And we had snowdrifts, Lavinen, and I was able uh, to somehow uh, diminish the bleeding and get my two comrades behind the snowdrift. And then I don't know what happened anymore until I woke up uh, at the assembly for the wounded. There I ended up in my first so-called field hospital, which had, um, had nothing. The floor were our beds. There were two sunnies, which were medics, no doctor, the nurses came later, and no medication. And I just had my belt here, because that was our pain medication. And the order was, bite in slater, bite into the leather to manage your pain. <laughs> and I not only bit into the leather, I started smoking. And I had a train, a lazarette uh, wagon, a train, hospital train, and were sent originally to Bayreuth. But first we didn't make it uh, past Dresden because the two big attacks on Dresden took place when we were in Dresden and we were lucky enough to have been 20 kilometers, about 16 miles, I guess, outside uh, of Dresden at a holding station. And the next day, uh, the attacks from the low-flying airplane. I was in the upper berth and I was hit here, just gazed, so I'm still able to use my elbow and uh, and have it healed almost 100%. I spent my first military hospital time in Hope. Fell in love with a nurse. Kim met her. <laughs> She's still alive and married uh, a GI, by the way. And uh, from there, I had found out that my mother and my siblings had ended up at my grandfather's, who was a Nazi official and therefore had some living space uh, for a while. And I was able to visit them before I went back to my unit. I have to say, I think Armin's story is beyond incredible. And I think the hard thing for a lot of people um, to consider when you're listening to uh, a story like this or you have somebody who um, was part of the Hitler Youth or a part of that uh, group of uh, individuals, is that there's a, a thin 
gray line. Um, that not everything is black and white when it comes down to individuals. And uh, for Armin and his situation, uh, as a child, he was thrust into this world. And it was through his observations that he ended up making his choices later on in life about how he was going to approach people and and deal with the, the real truth of the situation of what really happened during World War II and, and coming to terms with that himself. And I know he told us uh, personally that uh, he never got over um, seeing the footage from the camps being liberated and discovering what was going on uh, behind the curtains with the concentration camps. And I know that greatly disturbed him for many years because he was on the front line. He was uh, a courier. He was used as, um, you know, uh, how do I put that? The kids were often put up there as the first line of defense to get knocked down before they got to the adults. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and at that young of an age to have these experiences and see what he saw, um, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, he was such a gentle and a loving person. Uh, we were extremely fond of Armin and extremely close to him. Uh, we did a number of things uh, for him in the way of uh, productions, including, um, you know, a, a documentary DVD. And, uh, and we even did his 80th birthday um, salute uh, shortly before he passed away with some of his favorite music on it. And, and Armin, uh, like I say, he was he was an animal lover, Gary. He mm-hmm. loved animals all sure. throughout his life, and and uh, you know his father was a fanatical Nazi. His father was an unrepentant Nazi at the end of the war, mm-hmm. and so it led to an estrangement where Armin uh, and his father, you know, could not deal with each other at at the end of the war and after the war. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the interesting thing is. His father wanted him to uh, go to one of those uh, Nazi political schools where he could uh, become a, a, a leadership cadre, part of a leadership cadre. And Armin just wasn't into all that Nazi ideology. And, it, you know, he was into animals. He was, he was a poet. He liked to write poetry. He loved animals. And so <clears throat> he failed all of the uh, Nazi ideology entrance exams and couldn't get into the couldn't get into the leadership school. And his father was so furious with him that uh, he took back a watch he had given to Armin right before Armin went over for all of his uh, entry exams. Oh, really? He, he took it back because he was so disappointed with his son that he he was not going to be a leader in the in the uh, Nazi uh, regime. And so that's, that's uh, you know, some of the situation he was facing at mm. home. Yeah. Well, I know he had also mentioned to uh, in a few talks that we had with him that after he had seen the liberation uh, footage that was done by I think it was was it the Americans or the Germans that filmed that? Uh, um, not the Germans, the Russians. Was it the Americans or the Russians that filmed that? I think the Americans. Okay, so after he had watched the footage that the Americans had filmed of the camp liberations, yeah. he was convinced of what was going on when he went to approach his parents and family about it. They didn't believe him. Yeah, his father. Was, his father. His father didn't now, believe his him. His mother had the same heart that Armin did. She was a kind-hearted, gentle woman and, and non-political, basically. It was his father that, uh, you know, was the... 
<clears throat> was the major Nazi in the mm-hmm. family. And the, uh, the ironic thing of all was, here's this fanatical Nazi, totally disappointed with his son, disgusted with his son, and it is his son who ends up in history as Adolf Hitler's last courier Yeah, in the bunker. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, uh, next week we are going to continue Armin's story in his own words. Do not, do not miss that. Oh, no. And again, if you're listening for the first time, you like what you hear, you can always uh, find us each and every Friday with our new episodes. And we hope that you subscribe. But as for now, I'm Richard. I'm Gary. And this is a truly incredible story.